are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. So are you ready to go right now? What about you at home? Are you ready to go? So here we go. We're starting today a new series, and it's a study of the book of First Peter, and we're calling it Essentials. Now, the word essential is... Uh, been refreshed to us over these last three months. Let me give you a definition of the word essential, okay? Here's what the word means. This is a good definition right here. It's coming up any minute. There it is. Of the utmost importance, absolutely necessary, indispensable. So what in your life would you say, Rick, this is of the utmost importance? I mean, this is absolutely necessary. This is indispensable. So over these last three months, we've been hearing about essential businesses versus non-essential businesses, or essential services versus non-essential services, or essential workers versus non-essential workers. So Peter writes a letter along about 60 AD to a group of mostly non-Jewish believers. So these are people who were Gentiles that converted to Christianity, but don't have this Jewish background. He writes them a letter and he focuses on only the things that are essential. The reason is, is because they were in the midst of major persecution. Somebody help me with the people in the foyer. Would you just step out and ask, ask for some help there? So when you are dealing with times of crisis, like we learned a few months ago, what are you going to focus on? Essentials. And so when you've got a group of people who are dealing with persecution, I mean, their life is on the line. There's an emperor now in force whose name is Nero, and he is taking the lives of people simply for the fact that they are Christ followers. I mean, people are losing their lives. You're only going to focus on the essentials. So why don't we just make a list of what we think is essential real quick. What, if I ask you, is essential in your life, what would you say? And it's a given that we're going to say, you know, water and food and shelter and safety and belongingness and love. I get it. What other things are essential in your life? What would you say first? Family. Family is so important to us. I think what we learned during this shutdown was being connected to family and friends were very, very important. I think most people would jump out and say, okay, I think my relationship to God, that's essential. So we talk about values here at Bethany First Church, and we say time spent with God is of the utmost importance. It's absolutely necessary. It's something we can't do without. It's indispensable. I think we would also say time spent with other believers is essential. Time spent with people who aren't Christian is essential. If we are going to somehow share Jesus with people, we've got to spend time with them. We would also say living generously, not only giving of our time, but giving of our resources, that's essential. So what Paul does not just come right out and say, but he implies through every word that we find in these first nine verses is simply this. You ready? Here's what he says. Knowing who you are is of utmost importance. Having a good sense, having a good handle on your own identity, utmost importance. It's all he talks about in these first nine verses. Who you are in Christ. 
So I wonder if there's anybody looking at me right now saying, I struggle with that a little bit. Years ago, I remember reading a story about a policeman that walked up to a park bench and sitting on the bench was a man who appeared to be homeless. And he says to him, who are you? And the man looks up with lostness in his eyes and said, I wish I knew. Come to find out he was a famous German philosopher. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you just kind of thought to yourself, I don't even know if I knew who I am these days. So we're going to dig in. So open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 1, okay? So what do we know about Simon Peter? If I gave you a minute, you'd probably toss some things out like saying, well, he was one of the first of the 12 disciples. Uh, others of you would say, uh, Simon Peter was uh, kind of the first one who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? It was in that moment that Jesus said, okay, we're going to change your name. You're no longer going to be Simon. Uh, you're going to be in Aramaic, Cephas, translated to Greek as Petros, Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. On this confession, I'm going to build my church. We also know that he was a fisherman. On the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee one day, Jesus found him and said, follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. He and his brother Andrew left, followed Jesus, and they became fishers of men. We also know that he denied Jesus one time. The night Jesus was arrested before his crucifixion, Simon Peter says, you got the wrong guy. I do not know the man. I don't even know who he is. I've never met him, never seen him in my life. You're confused. I, I'm not one of his. But we also know that days later he was restored. And he becomes a great leader. And now he is in the church, leading the church, and he writes a letter to a group of people who live in the area called Asia Minor. It's many churches that he's writing to. They're being persecuted because of their faith. He wants to encourage them and give them instruction. Let me give you a map, okay? This would be Asia Minor right here. This is what is today modern-day Turkey. And he actually names Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia. And there are many churches. Paul planted many of them as a missionary in his journey here. This is the, this is the group of people in many churches He's writing. You remember when Paul writes the Ephesians? He's only writing to the people who live in Ephesus. Peter believes that this letter is going to be circulated to many of these people who are dealing with severe suffering and persecution. So let me take you to those scriptures, okay? Chapter 1, 1 Peter, verse 1. Here we go. You ready? Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to God's elect, exiles, scattered, Throughout the provinces, you remember the map? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen. Listen for the Trinity in these next few verses, will you? Who has been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. It's all about identity. This is who you are. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. 
Now he moves to the body of the letter, still focused on what Jesus has done in them, for them, and who they now have become. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never uh, perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So in this, you greatly rejoice. He, He says it another time because the default setting for a Christian is joy, right? So you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer. And that's putting it lightly, grief in all kinds of trials, because we know that these are people who are being persecuted only for the simple reason that they follow Jesus Christ and love Him. Some are losing their lives. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's like He's saying that when you go through suffering, when you go through really hard times, When life feels really strange for us, like it does today, when you think about what you felt three months ago, when you go through those tough times, that's when your faith is proven. You turn to God, God is there for you. And you realize this faith that I've talked about all of these years, it actually carried me through that season. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So let's dive in and learn what Simon Peter is trying to communicate to these people who are scattered throughout what is today called Turkey, churches, people experiencing great persecution and suffering because of their faith. And he begins with this conversation about identity. It's essential that you know who you are. So there's a family that attends our church. Their names are Serge and Emily. Their last name is Kurtovich. You may say, Kurtovich is not a name that I hear often. Probably is not. Serge was actually born in Bosnia. They have two young children that attend with them. And there are real bright lights around here. So Annette and I had the opportunity to eat dinner with Serge and Emily a few months ago. And we sat down and had a great conversation with them. I was fascinated by Serge's story. He told me that he was born in the country of Bosnia. But as a young boy, before he became 10 years old, war breaks out in Bosnia. And they end up having to flee the country to save their lives. So they become refugees. So you understand that when you're a refugee, when you leave a country, you leave with only suitcases in your hands. And so Serge, his mother, his father leaves Bosnia and they become refugees to a country that was opening their arms to refugees from Bosnia called Germany. They live in Germany for five years. Serge said it was good to be there. We lived among other refugees. And so we talked a lot about what it was like to 
be forced out of your homeland, to leave your country with the idea that you may never return, and now you're going to live in a new country, and you take only with you what you can pack in a few suitcases. Serge said after five years, there was an agreement made with the United States of America for refugees leaving Bosnia, and they were able to come to the United States of America. So when he was 15 years old, he moved here and has lived here since. So I asked him if I could tell the story, and he gave me permission to do so. And we talked about what it's like when you leave a country, knowing that that's your homeland, that's your heritage, that's where you were born, it's where your parents were raised, but you may never return there. What do you try to preserve? We talked about how his parents wanted to preserve language. They didn't want to give up, didn't want to ever quit speaking their native language, although they would need to learn the language of the new land they were living in. He talked about customs and traditions that still for this today, his parents want to preserve because they are Bosnians. But most of all, the fear of loss is your children. And will they just be absorbed into the surrounding culture and be lost to the culture that they come to? Simon Peter writes these people, and although they are Gentile Christians and don't even have an understanding like they will one day have of the Jewish world and being the people of God and what it was like to be raised a Jew, he uses a lot of Old Testament language. One of the words that he uses is exile, a word that my friend Serge understands really well because he was exiled from his country, not able to live there any longer. And he goes to live in another land. That's what it means to be exiled. And although the people that Peter is writing to have not left their homeland at all, he uses the language metaphorically to say, just like Abraham lived in exile, you like Abraham are wandering in exile and you are true members of Abraham's family through Jesus Christ looking for your true home. Now, you have to think about this idea of exile metaphorically. For Serge, it was very real. For you and me, it's a metaphor. For the people Paul, Peter, rather, is writing to, it's a metaphor. So here's what it looks like. I have dual citizenship. I didn't know if you knew that or not. How many of you knew that I have dual citizenship? I've got one person over here who knows that. So I was born a citizen of the United States of America but also have a citizenship in the kingdom of God. So I'm kind of a part of two, two different places. And that's the metaphor that he's trying to use when he says exile. So here you are. You live in the United States of America. However, you have another citizenship, and that is in heaven. And so you're a citizen of that world also. And sometimes in this land where you are exiled, you don't feel like you fit. So although I live here in Oklahoma City, I would have to say to you that there are times when I don't fit in the culture that I function in. My beliefs are sometimes very different than the beliefs of the people around me. My values are very different than the values of the people who live around me. 
Sometimes I almost feel like I speak a different language. Sometimes I feel a little displaced. And I know this is not my permanent home. But one day, I will go to my permanent home, a place called heaven. You know, grew up in a small Kentucky town, and in that small Kentucky town, we sung a song that said, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. I sometimes feel like I live counterculturally. The whole world is going that direction, and I feel like I'm going the other direction. But isn't that what a Christian should feel like? Shouldn't we feel like we are residents and aliens in a foreign land? Shouldn't we realize that the values that we have are not necessarily the values of the culture around us? And shouldn't we stand out rather than blending in? I understand. It's easy to want to blend in. We desire to blend in. And I'm not talking about standing out to the point that you become some social misfit that you would never have any influence for Jesus at all in this world. That's not where I'm going. But should not the world look at us and think they're a little different in a good way? They're very loving people. They, leave, they love each other in immeasurable ways. I mean, they are a great community. But they're also open arms to people who aren't in their community. They have really high values. They have really high morals. They're special people. Isn't that the way the world should think about us? And should not the world look at us and say, we have a lot to learn from the Christian community? I mean, we should be different because here's the deal. When you live as exiles, there's always a temptation. It's easy to forget who you are. It's easy to be absorbed by the culture. It's easy to adopt the values of the culture. It's easy to adopt the beliefs of the culture. And before long, you're just going around saying, well, I mean, kind of the whole world believes this is true, so I guess this is true, instead of saying, no, no, no. We find our truth in Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to Seasons like we're in now, where the world in the United States, rather, there's so much division. We're we the ones who are quick to listen. We're the ones who say, we want to hear what our black brothers and sisters have to say. We're the ones who are slow to speak. In an environment where everybody is saying, speak up, it's not the time to be silent, we're saying... We're going to speak, but our words are going to be very calculated. And we're the ones who are slow to become angry. And so we should be the ones where the world is saying, wait a minute, the Christians are talking. We need to listen because they're, they're quick to listen. They're slow to speak and they're slow to become angry. Whatever they say is going to be really good. They don't react emotionally. While the whole world is moving in this direction, it's like we're swimming against the current and the flow coming the other way. We will never blend in completely. We are strangers and aliens to this country. Our home is somewhere else. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. 
The reason it's so important that you know who you are is because sometimes when you live in exile like we are, metaphorically speaking, you'll forget who you are. And you'll be absorbed by your culture. Let me move to another deal, okay? I talked about surge. I want to talk about somebody else real quick. My feelings are whether you're watching at home or whether you're sitting here this morning, um, you, you know this person, okay? Um, so this is a person who I'm quick to say is among God's elect. I have no problem coming out that strong, okay? I know that sounds like, wow. But no, this person, and, and, and you probably know this person, okay? But I'm going to just... This, is a per, this person is among God's elect. In fact, I would go so far as to say, this person has been chosen by God. I think you're going to agree with me when I tell you who it is. This person has been chosen by God. This person has been set apart by God for a particular purpose. This is a born-again Christian I'm talking about, a person who lives with a lot of hope and a lot of joy. Have you figured out who it is? Are you trying? Do you think you know? It's you. I'm talking about you. You are among God's elect. That means you've received His grace. God chose you out of the crowd. God said, I want a relationship with you. He came to you, okay? God comes all the way to you. He, he calls you. He draws you because He wants really... God set you apart, sanctified you by His Holy Spirit. He said, I've got purpose and intentionality for your life. He gave you this new birth. You have been given this new life, born again with new joy and new hope. Do you understand? This is who you are. I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think we walk around kind of wondering who we are. And I want to say, straighten your back and raise your chin. Do you realize who in the world you are? You are God's elect for heaven's sakes. Look at you. God picked you out of the crowd and said, I want a relationship with you. God has set you aside, separated you, saying, I have purpose for your life. He's given you a new life. He's filled you with joy and hope and an inheritance. I remember saying to this Friend, years ago, something about his finances were out of control, and he was pretty young. And I'm like, you got to get it together. He said, it doesn't matter. I said, why doesn't it matter? He said, when my parents die, I'm going to be well off. They're loaded. It's going to be okay. Now, that's hope, right? What if they live to be 104? You ever think about that? No, you have this inheritance waiting for you in heaven. And you live in this relationship with Jesus. I mean, think about this. You, you live your life. I'm just giving you language from Peter right here in these first nine. But you live in relationship with Jesus. You know what's really essential is that you know who you are. Because it's easy to forget. And sometimes you just got to remind yourself of your own identity. This is who I am. So as I was working through the sermon, I remember a story that I read a few years ago. Uh, it's in a book called Rescue, compiled by the Brooklyn Tabernacle, a church in New York City. And it's story after story of transformed lives. And I opened the book, and there was a picture in front of me 
of a six foot five African American gentleman whose name is Lawrence. Lawrence said, my parents did not stay together very long. After my mother conceived, my father was gone. So when in New York City that day, my mother gave birth to me, there was no father in the waiting room anxiously waiting to see that he had a new baby boy. Nobody was there. My mother did not want me when I was two months old. She took me to a place called Antigua in the West Indies, and she dropped me off at my grandmother's house and went back to New York City for my grandmother to raise me. I would have to tell you that for seven years, my life was really good. My grandmother loved me. It didn't matter to me that my mother was older than all the other mothers around. I, I didn't even think about it. I just knew that she loved me and cared for me. My life was great. But when she fell ill and knew she could not continue to raise me at seven years of age, I was sent to New York to live with my mother who did not want me. I looked so much like my father that it made my mother hate me. And the narrative that she said to me over and over again is, you are good for nothing. You will never amount to anything. You're just like your dad. You're only taking up space on the planet. It wasn't long as a seven-year-old boy after I got into New York that the abuse began and it was severe. First it was a belt and maybe then a shoe. And then it became her favorite choice to whip me with. And it was always an electrical extension cord that she would sometimes weave together and lay across me. I remember one day hearing my aunt say to my mom, stop, you're going to kill him. And my mom's response was, it doesn't matter. He's never going to amount to anything anyway. He's just like his no good dad. He's worthless. I said, life was hard. I became introverted. I became shy. I became beat down. I became quiet. And then one day our lives changed. At the age of 13, we moved to Miami. And in Miami, my life was good. For one thing, I'd gotten pretty tall. And it wasn't as easy for my mother to abuse me. And the other thing, coaches wanted me on their team. I played basketball, I played football, but I got really good at basketball. I got so good at basketball that by my senior year, I was not only MVP, but I was All-American, which meant scholarships. My mother could have cared less. Didn't even show interest when I talked about college. So it was my coach, my high school basketball coach, who chose my college for me. And so I go off from Miami to Atlanta, Georgia, to a rolling college to play basketball. Freshman year went great. Sophomore year went great until I was injured. And that injury I would not recover from to ever be able to play competitive basketball again. No scholarship, no school. I had to drop out. I called my mother and she said, don't even think about coming to Miami. Don't do it. You're not coming here. And so he said, I went to New York. I had some extended family. I slept from couch to couch. I worked. And with a little money that I could save and a little money an uncle gave me, I was able to fulfill my lifelong dream to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma to go to flight school. So here he says, I am. I get a job at a Denny's washing dishes. 
I find a roommate who lets me sleep on his couch. And my life is finally turning around. Maybe after all, my mom is wrong. My life is going to amount to something. I'm going to fly a plane. But he says that Denny's business wasn't good, and the manager says, I hate to let you go, but I got to let you go because business is slow. If it picks up, you can come back, but not now. My roommate says, if you can't pay the weekly rent, you can't sleep on the couch, you got to go. I got to get somebody in here who can. And he said, so I was homeless. I think when you think of homeless people, he said, you think of alcoholics and drug addicts and people who are mentally ill. And I was none of the three. I just didn't have anybody. One day walking between two apartment buildings, I saw a mattress sticking up out of a dumpster that someone had thrown away. And I pulled it out of the dumpster and laid it beside the dumpster. And that became my home for a few months. He said, the thing about living as a homeless person is that you never get clean. You're always hungry, and therefore you're always kind of lightheaded and dizzy. And you're always alone, except for the flies in the daytime and the mosquitoes at night. They drive you absolutely crazy. They won't go away. I was selling blood, $7 a pop, three times a week to eat and begging for food wherever I could get it. I was applying for jobs, but nobody would hire me. I don't blame them. You should have seen me. I was a mess. And finally, I was beginning to give up. And here I am thinking maybe my mother was right. Maybe I'm just garbage, living beside garbage. Maybe the reason I'm where I am today is because I never would amount to anything or be anybody or do anything with my life. And so he says, one week I didn't buy bread with my blood money. I bought pills. And laying on that mattress, one morning I decided that this is it. I'm going to go to sleep and never wake up from this horrible life again. It's all going to be over. And laying there with this bottle of pills in my hands, it was not unusual that you would hear TVs and radios blaring because I was sleeping between these two apartment buildings. And so, you know, I heard the television. And on the television, there was most distinctly a preacher, and I heard him say, God loves you. God has a plan for your life. Jesus gave his life for you. And I don't know, he said, I began to maybe believe what he was saying was true, and he began to continue preaching, and I listened. He talked about, just call out to God. Just call out to him right now. Just ask Jesus into your heart. And I remember laying there just crying bottle of pills in my hand saying, I don't even know what it means, Jesus, but I'm calling out to you. I'm calling out to you. And he said, in that moment, something happened to me. I was dramatically changed. Just like the people that Peter's writing to who are experiencing this horrible suffering. Their life is up for grabs right now. They may die because of their faith. 
They had experienced this new birth into this living hope. And Lawrence said, that's what I experienced. I look back on it and think, how could a person be filled with so much joy to be in the condition that I was in? But I was, I was full of joy. Something had happened to me. I was just dramatically transformed. I was changed. So I won't take a lot more time with you, but what happens next is that he goes to Denny's to see if there's any food they're going to throw away. And that old friend said, he's looking for a dishwasher. And he said, I'm going to go talk to him. And he says, don't, not like you look. He's not going to hire you. And he had mercy on me. Let me go to his apartment and he let me clean up. And I got the job at Denny's. I got another part-time job at a hotel. I got back into flight school eventually. I became a pilot, then a flight instructor. I moved back to New York City one night in Madison Square Garden listening to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sing with a friend. I heard stories like mine. I began to attend the church. I met a wonderful woman. We have a little daughter together. And what he learned that his mother was wrong. See, enemy is going to tell you this is not your identity. You are not among God's elect. You have not been chosen, set apart. It's a lie. You got to know who you are. Because if you don't know who you are in exile, living in a strange land like we're living, you might lose your identity. You might forget. You might be absorbed by the culture around you. So sometimes you got to remind yourself, I am among God's elect. You straighten your back and you raise your chin and you say, God has chosen me. He has separated me, called me, and has a plan for my life. I belong to him. So let's stand today. Let's celebrate the fact that this is who I am. No matter what the enemy says, I know who I am. That's essential. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.